0: If you want to turn there with me, <clears throat> excuse me, not Daniel chapter 9, but Daniel chapter 11. Okay,
1: Daniel chapter 11. Now, we, we uh, started last week in Daniel chapter 11, and we looked at the first 35 verses, and we saw kind of those were historically fulfilled. Those are things that are already done uh, from a prophetic standpoint. And then we see uh, from 35, from 36 forward, things that are yet unfulfilled. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So um, some of the topics that we cover this morning are the characteristics of the gen- the final Gentile king in the end time. Uh, you can call him Antichrist if you choose to. That would be an appropriate term. Um, He's just identified here in Daniel as a king. And so I'm sticking with that, uh, though I think as you'll see as we go forward this morning, same description, we find the same person in Revelation. So uh, characteristics of the final Gentile king in in the end of time, we have a war-filled state in the end of time. I think that's important for us to realize and understand, so we're going to take a little bit of a look at that. And then we see ultimately the total defeat of this particular king. Um, That's that's what we see in this chapter. Now, while the remainder of chapter 11 deals primarily with these topics, there's a few honorable mentions uh, that we can derive from this. And I I don't have a slide for any of that, but uh, really the timeline of the end times is not sequentially revealed. And I want to make that very clear. Uh, When we read through Daniel and we see Uh, And I think Daniel does a good job illustrating this truth for us because we've encountered the same idea several times throughout Daniel, starting in chapter two with Nebuchadnezzar's vision of these sequential kingdoms, one after the other, after the other. And ultimately, as we saw in Daniel chapter two, that God himself cuts this stone out of the mountain and crushes all of these kingdoms. We see the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ at the end. And then we see the same, some some beasts revealed later, and we see those uh, clarified in chapters 7 and 8 a little bit. Um, But it's really the same thing. And this is no different. It's a very similar prophecy, maybe a little bit more detail, a little bit more specific than the previous ones, but God has given a very consistent theme prophetically in the book of Daniel. And it's not sequential, nor is every uh, detail given to us, just as God has progressively revealed his plan of redemption for mankind, he's progressively revealed his plan
0: of redemption for all of creation. And we can look at that and see it expand and grow and our understanding
1: uh, increase as we study through uh, the New Testament and we get into those things that we read yet uh, future. But God has given, even though it's not sequentially revealed, God has given mankind uh, the substantive situations. Key markers, if you will, things that we should pay attention to. And while they may not always be chronological, uh, we can find further information in other portions of the Bible. Chapter 11, this chapter that we're in today, is no exception. Chapter 10 is the preface to this prophecy that begins in chapter 11 and continues into chapter 12. But we read about historical events as they affect Israel. That's still the context. This is something that affects Israel. We don't find the church discussed that much. We don't. We don't see those things happen here. We do see the church in the New Testament, and we do see the church uh, in, in its prophetic state, if I can phrase it that way, for lack of better terms. Uh, as we get into whether it's in Thessalonians, whether it's in uh, the Book of Revelation, and those things, there are some things. Uh, the, the church is there. At some point, the track of history or prof- prophetic uh, of prophecy for Israel and the church run simultaneously. At some point, they run simultaneously. There's a lot of division about where that happens. That really doesn't matter. It's largely insignificant. Everyone would agree that at some point they run simultaneously. Um, And so as we read through this, we see historical events, and then we see this abrupt switch from verse 35 to verse 36, this abrupt change from historical to future fulfillment. Uh, Parallel passage, things that are parallel to what we read in Daniel chapter 11 would include Daniel chapter 7. I mean, really, we could include Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8. Because we see those things, but I'm just focusing primarily on the future, those things that are yet unfulfilled. Daniel chapter seven, Revelation chapter 13 through 19. And in those chapters in Revelation, there's a lot more revealed, a lot greater depth given to those things. Now, there is, it's obviously not all, there's metaphors and similes and pictures there, just as we find here. Matthew 24 is also a parallel passage to Daniel chapter 11. And in Matthew 24, we have the the reality that Jesus himself is addressing these things. And there are things that Jesus sees as yet unfulfilled in history that have been discussed even here in the book of Daniel. We've highlighted that fact more than once. Uh, Those I would recommend to you for further study. If you have questions, if you want deeper insight, if you, if you want to engage further, those are places to study. We've been in those. We're going to be back in those again today. Um, there's probably a lot more to flesh out. All right. So the King of the End Time. Let's let's read the verses thirty six through thirty eight. Um, <clears throat> It says, and the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the God of forces. And a God whom his fathers knew not, shall he honor with gold, silver, and with precious stones and pleasant things. Now, we talked about the the foreshadowing of this particular king by Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. We, We talked about that last week. And we see this sudden transition from things that are yet history, or that are history to things that are yet fulfilled in those beginning of verse 36 and the, the reason we have to say there's an abrupt shift is because the things that are discussed here were not fulfilled in, in history. We can't point to anything with great clarity that says this is it. In fact, we can't really even point to anything that's less than clear. So there's a sudden shift where we can cle- see clear fulfillment of these things in the past, yet these things going forward have not happened. And part of that is who this king is. And we see some of those characteristics that are that, that are discussed about him, and they're, they, they don't align, they don't fit with Antiochus Epiphanes. Even though he took upon the name of Epiphanes of, of his own accord and said, hey, I'm I'm the guy that you should be really paying attention to and wanted to be worshipped as God and all of those things. He wanted to be worshipped as Zeus. He wanted to be worshipped as a known God. But here we have this clear description that this king that is Coming wants to be worshiped different from all other gods. He's not regarding the gods of his heritage or anything else, things as we're going to see. There's a very big shift. Now, this king that's being described, this king of the end time, he's synonymous with the beast in Revelation chapter 13. If you want to turn there with me, let's read a few passages. And we looked at this earlier, but I want to put us in remembrance again. Um, Revelation 13, <clears throat> and let's read the first 10 verses. We're not going to make a lot of comment here. Remember that there is some metaphor, some, some poetic language, so to speak, in Revelation. Um, just as we've seen in Daniel, these beasts that are, that are there represent kingdoms, and the same is true here in Revelation. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard in his feet, as the feet of a bear, and his mouth is the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now, if you'll remember when we were here before, We talked about the dragon. We went back in Revelation. We identified him clearly because the dragon is identified as Satan. Very clearly, emphatically, explicitly. We can't imply the dragon to be anything other than that. Because God has told us who he is. And I saw one of his heads as it was wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered at the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying... Who is like unto the beast, and who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God, to blaspheme His name and His tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. I mean, there's a clear statement that this guy is this beast who is obviously, clearly, powered by Satan. That's the only reference to any divine uh or supernatural force associated with him and that should be no surprise to us we've talked about this being a spiritual battle we're going to talk about it again today but here he is and he's clearly coming against god remember that there's this coalescence there's this coming together of the enemies of god and ultimately it coalesces comes together and culminates in a in one unified attempt to remove God from man's understanding. And that largely is accomplished behind this particular king. And all that dwell, verse 8, upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He that kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So this description, some identification, so to speak, of who he is, what his motivations are, and what his ultimate goal is. His ultimate goal is to make war with the saints, is to overcome and to remove God from the remembrance of man.
0: That's what it's all about.
1: All the other things that come alongside of that world power Uh, Be, be, even being worshipped as God, ultimately is a means to
0: that end, that God is forgotten. We also find that this is the same
1: uh, character, the little horn identified in Daniel chapter 7. If you want to turn
0: to Daniel chapter 7 with me, we'll look at just a few verses there. Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. After this, I saw in the night vision, and
1: behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, who, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things. This is synonymous with that beast in Revelation 13. This is synonymous with the king of the end time that's being revealed here. Now, I want to do a little bit of review. Wow, that was quite interesting. I want to do just a little bit
0: of review and look at um, maybe... some of the things that we looked at in the past uh, in regard to or not
1: some of the characteristics of the fourth beast Uh, because this was he was real real remember diverse from all of the other beasts that were before him there's a difference in the way his uh, kingdom operates and its structure each of these other kingdoms were were independent of themselves. Each of them was unique and tied to a region, uh, as it were. But this beast and what, what he has is diverse from all. It doesn't originate in a political sphere. It doesn't originate uh, as one kingdom, an existing nation, exalted and coming up. It's something different. And it's the coalescence, which is a big word that means the coming together of the enemies of God. That's what this kingdom is really all about. That's why it's so drastically different. It's a movement worldwide to, to willingly suppress the truth of God's
0: existence and mankind's desire to not retain God in their, in their understanding.
1: And this isn't the first time this has happened. We find this referenced and, and looked at, and we kind of discussed it in, well, I think I'm getting ahead of myself, but we kind of discussed this in uh, babel, we have the same thing. Because in Babylon, uh, where we find this, the fourth beast is represented by Babylon. Remember that word Babel? It's the same word as Babylon. It's exactly the same word translated from Hebrew. And here we have the first instance where man cooperates against God. We're going to make this tower to the heavens. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to establish ourselves. That's what they were doing in Babel, the Tower of
0: Babel. That was their goal, was to somehow replace God with their own efforts, with their own uh, initiative. The kingdom, as we read in Daniel chapter uh, 7, that little horn,
1: it's worldwide. It's all of mankind, and they're going to willingly participate and if they're not willing, they'll be forced into subjection to this particular king. They're gonna. There's no option for them. In fact, as you look in Revelation chapter thirteen, we did when we when
0: we were here in the past. If you rise up against, or if you speak out against this particular king, you'll be put to death. The totalitarian world uh, leader here
1: indicated. Uh, we have this political manifestation that begins with all of these nations that come together. We find that three of those nations, um, at least three of them, willingly or, or or, perhaps they less than willingly give their uh, authority to this particular king. And that sort of establishes him. We find that there's this, this coalition of nations, ten of them, that will come together ultimately and that sort of sets the stage. Um,
0: this is probably the most important part of the identification of this world ruler.
1: That There's a spirit behind the beast, that, that, that ruler that is established there. And it's really the affirmation that this is a, a spiritual battle and not a physical one this is something that is happening the kingdom of the son of man began with jesus's birth and we talked about that in isaiah chapter 9 unto us the son is given uh, all of those things and we see that happening when it culminates at the end of time with jesus's return ultimately when he comes back and he's ruling and reigning here he ultimately defeats his his enemies we're going to see that here in just a moment uh, toward the end of this chapter but we have the manifestation of the little horn this this king, this person that is uh, supernaturally uh, powered by Satan. We, we, we get that from Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 13. There are false signs and wonders. Uh, not necessarily the same person, but in Revelation 13, these false signs and wonders. He speaks against God. He speaks blasphemies. He desires to be worshipped. Uh, I realize we're moving quickly, but This is all stuff that we've covered in the past. And he makes war against the saints. Now, by saints, this is, I think in some respects, it's a reference to the church. uh, But I think it's really, in addition to that, it's a reference to all of God's people, the church in Israel. So at some point, as I said, those two tracks of prophecy run side by side. You're either with God
0: or you're against them. And in the same respect, you're either with the Antichrist or you're against it. All of that is cause for concern, obviously. What are the characteristics that we find in Daniel chapter 11?
1: Well, number one, he's an absolute ruler, a totalitarian. There's, there's only one king in this, this ultimate political manifestation. When it, when it gets to that point, there's only one guy in charge. Uh, Daniel seven twenty three. just read there for a moment, then we'll come back to, to uh, Daniel 11. At the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. There's going to be one king. And then as we we look here in Daniel chapter 11, and the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things. Neither shall there there is no one else here. There was no one else to stand against him. And, And rebellion Anything against him and against his rule is punishable by death. So I want to just turn to Revelation 13. In fact, you might keep your finger in Revelation 13.
0: Revelation 13, verses 7 through 8. It says, And it was given unto him
1: to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So whenever you read, and especially in the New Testament, all kindreds, tongues, and nations, that's a reference to every single person on the earth at that time. It represents all of mankind. And so he is given authority. He's the one world ruler over all kindreds, nations, and tongues. That's God's way of saying everyone. And he continues on, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, Whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So there's going to be this coming together around this particular person. People are going to worship, whether it's uh, forced, like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They had the option, they had the, the choice. I can either stand with God or I can be put to death. You're either going to have that happening or they're going to willingly worship this particular rule the world ruler. Notice, though, it says in verse 7, and it was given to him to make war with the saints. This is his desire. He wants to fight against God. He wants to oppress the people of God, but it was
0: given to him. This is something that God has allowed. This is something that God has allowed.
1: And so when we're reading through this, we have to pay attention because who is really in charge? There's some guy down here on earth that's fueled by Satan, may have some supernatural capability as a result of that. But ultimately, who is in charge? And I know we've made that point before, but I want to reiterate it because it's easy to get down and woe is me. Look at all of this, especially because it says not only is he going to war against the saints, but he's going to overcome them. There's a period of time where God, that is permitted by God for him to overcome the saints. God has never left us, nor forsaken us, nor will he in that instance. But in his will, or in his sovereignty, to bring about
0: his will, he has allowed it. So we have this absolute ruler, totalitarian.
1: Uh, We also see that there is a confirmation that there is a desire uh, or a forceful worship as god that he wants to be in that place in that position uh, revelation 13 verse 15 uh, let me read that to you if you want to turn there you can revelation 13 15
0: <clears throat>
1: and he does great wonders now when he's talking about he doing great wonders there's a second character in revelation 13 um, that sort of does sizing wonders to confirm the first beat. Uh, he, it, prophetically he's called the false prophet we didn't get into him and the reason we did is because he's not in daniel so we didn't need to but there is another character here if you read through all of chapter 13 there are two characters being discussed and this is the second one uh, and he does great wonders so that he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth and the sight of all um, that come verse 13 verse 14 and he deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles. So this is what's happening. There's the deception happening. Verse 15, I'm going to skip down to there. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should not speak, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. You're either with him or you're against him. There is no other option. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego realize that, and it's interesting that they face that in the midst of their uh, being brought into captivity by Babylon. And here it is coming to fruition again, yet, yet in the future, that you'll either worship this false image of the first beast, the fall, this image, this idol to the Antichrist,
0: or you'll be put to death. This creates a world religion. That's the only thing allowed. So we have a world government and we have a world religion. I want to talk about that world religion for just
1: a little while because it's really where the spiritual battle that really exists
0: turns into a physical battle. It's where the two come together. So we find that this world religion that
1: is yet to come blasphemes God, verse 36. The king shall do according to his will. He's going to speak marvelous things against the God of gods. He's going to have, it says in verse 37, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. Now that word God there, it's in in the King James and I think in many other even modern translations, it's capital G, but it's simply the word Elohim which in Genesis means God, capital G, but it's just a generic word in Hebrew for God. So there are some that would say that this this, uh, Antichrist is going to be Jewish as a result of this right here. Maybe, maybe not. I tend to think not. You find the word Elohim throughout the Old Testament not capitalized. So I don't understand why The translators were compelled to do this. And in fact, not only conservative scholars, but liberal scholars don't understand why translators felt compelled to to translate this with a capital G. At any rate, he's not going to regard the true and living God. He's already going to blaspheme him from verse 36, but he's not going to regard the gods of his heritage, whether he be Jewish or not. No matter what happens, he's not, so not only is he a blasphemer against the living God, he's a blasphemer against all gods. He's not going to, he doesn't want to share his glory with anyone. And he exalts himself as God, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. This world religion that pops up, circles and centers around him being the key Object of worship and the only object of worship that is permissible, punishable by death, as we saw. It says that he honors the god of forces. Okay, he honors the god of forces in verse thirty-eight. the The word forces there it's the it's the word fortress. In many respects, this this gives us some indication that this is not necessarily a spiritual kingdom, but this is a material. Uh, religion right, material meaning there isn't anything supernatural, that, that, that's not what they're worshiping. We're worshiping this man over here, which is an interesting thought for us in Revelation chapter 17, verse 16. You, you have this discussion, Let, let's turn there and look at it for just a moment. Revelation 17, verse 16. One of the things that happens as they make war against the saints is this antichrist, is this final king. Uh, rises up and becomes powerful and begins to
0: supplant God is that um, maybe it's not Revelation 17, 16.
1: (laughs) I don't know. In Revelation 17, as it's being discussed, uh, and I apologize, I don't know which verse it is. There's this discussion about the destruction of all religious symbols. All other religions apart from that are going to be wiped out. And you see other uh, conquering countries come in, and they'll do they'll do that similarly. Pri- primarily, before the Roman Empire, they replaced those gods with their own gods. Uh, the Romans were were pretty comfortable letting you worship your gods as long as uh, the Caesar was the, the first and only first god. You didn't have to be the only god. Uh, they were comfortable with that. But we see the destruction of religious symbols. And then, with the exception of what we read about Satan in Revelation thirteen, being the power behind the fourth beast, being behind this last king, there is no divine power spoken of. It's all materialistic philosophy. Uh, and it stands there as such. so that when we encounter him, his trust isn't in any supernatural force like w- when we see worlds around us and we see wars and rumors of wars and those things we trust in the living god who we don't see but we know he exists he's manifest himself to us uh through his word through his creation through all of those things and there's this confirmation of his existence though we don't see him that's not what's going to happen in this particular religion what's going to happen here is it's is it's uh materialistic manifestation in that here is our god over there we can go see him we can go speak to him and he'll speak back to us and not only that but he's powerful in that he has all this military might it's key it's a key component of not only maintaining that world rule but
0: maintaining this world religion
1: so very likely it's a materialistic philosophy and really it's the ultimate blasphemy because it's the exaltation of human power and capability and attainment against God. Which is exactly what they said at Babel, right? Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's exalt
0: ourselves above the God in the heavens. The third characteristic of this uh,
1: world ruler is that he'll be a hater of jesus which should be of no surprise but i want to talk about it because it's sort of an obscure reference in verse 37 he says he's not going to regard the god of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any god and so on and so forth the desire of women remember that this is spoken to daniel in a jewish a jewish man in a jewish context with the understanding that this is how this is gentile interaction with the nation of israel there's yet future and these things are looking forward to to some things but the desire of jewish women was to be the
0: mother of the messiah they knew that that was how he was coming and we know that all the way back from genesis chapter 3 so there's this desire and this expectation and this hope to be honored with the
1: privilege of being the mother of the messiah so he's not going to regard any other God, nor is he going to regard the desire of women, which is really a reference to Jesus Christ, to this coming Messiah, the Son of God. Genesis three fifty, and really, why would he hate him? Because ultimately, God's already told him that he's going to lose. God has already told him that he's going to lose. Sure, you'll strike a temporary victory, bruising the heel of the seed of the woman, but he's going to crush your head.
0: He's going to crush your head. You are going to lose. And so as a result of all that, we see this this resultant persecution for
1: the people of God, for the saints. He wars against them. They're persecuted. They're forced to either recant Christ
0: or to be put to death. And the same is true for the nation of Israel. They're either going
1: to have to recant uh, the true and living God, whether they've become Christians or not, or they're going to be put to death. Because the only option is to worship this one world
0: ruler, this Antichrist figure that's described here in Daniel chapter 11. It's going to be a hater of Jesus. Now, as we get
1: into I was going to introduce this slide. Hold on, let me back up because it's fun. You know, I was a surveyor for a while, and I made some maps. And so I made a map to help explain the complexity of the players throughout the rest of this chapter. See, that was a better setup, wasn't it? From the north, the south, and the east, all I had to know was three directions, and I found those on the compass. So it didn't take much. We don't have specifics about who they are. But what we do know is that as we read through the rest of this chapter, that they're identified as particular kings. So let's look at that. Let's read verses forty through forty-five, because we have the characteristics of this coming king given to us in those in thirty-six uh, up to thirty-nine, uh, and then we have in verse forty, we have sort of the description of this war-filled state. In the end time. Okay. And the time of the end, at the time of the end, so we're told when this is happening, this is at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him, speaking of that one world ruler. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall re- enter also into the glorious land. Glorious land in both places that we encounter in Daniel is Jerusalem. That's it. So there's the glorious land. I've shown you where that's at. It's right along there somewhere. Glorious land. And that's the point of reference for north, south, and east.
0: We don't hear about the west. So I didn't put it on there. He's going to enter into the glorious land, verse 41.
1: And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. And he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries in the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasure of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But the tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacle of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So let's talk about uh, th- these key players. We have the in the king of the south shall push at him. What we have here is a description of rebellion against this one world ruler by nations as
0: wholes.
1: The king of the south. Now, the king of the south is Egypt, and we know that because that's consistent with what we've read here. But it's probably more than that. And the reason I say that is because when we get into verse. Uh, chapter 43, and it talks about Egypt being overcome and the Libyans and Ethiopians. The South is probably not only Egypt, but it's probably a reference to all of Africa. So, how can there be 10, 10 kings that all of a sudden, you know, well, if we reduce all of these continents and all of these regions to a few, if we unify their leadership first and foremost, which I don't know if that is what's
0: going to happen, but it could happen. Just throwing it out there as an option. Do with it as you may. It is strictly my opinion.
1: But here we have Egypt clearly referenced with other countries and being called the king of the south. So I think that there's really good credence for us to say that anything north of Jerusalem falls in and under the reign of the king of the north and anything to the east of Jerusalem, as we show here, which, which indicates just really a few countries, in that region
0: would be everything to the east, the king of the east. All that to say that as we, as we, we don't really know
1: who the unknown threat of the east is, but we sort of look at Syria and their, their bounds for king of the north, and probably more, our Rus- Russian friends that are currently invading the Ukraine are probably included in that. We don't know with certainty, but if you look at the Syrian Empire as it was in in, in Antiochus's day, as a foreshadowing, and then we see that that same understanding that here is Egypt and all of these other countries aligned with one another, being under one king, it wouldn't be that far of a stretch. In fact, it would be a very consistent interpretation. So we have world rulers coming against. This one world ruler, there is a rebellion happening here, and this really alludes to a a, a world war, a war of world proportions. Um, and I just want to point out the victories of the Antichrist. I mean, as you read through in verse 40, so we're going to have the king of the north and the king of the south pushing against them, but it says that he. Uh, <clears throat> he shall enter into their countries so even the king of the north he's going to come with a whirlwind with chariots with all kinds of military might but it says at the end and he speaking of the one this antichrist figure shall enter into their countries and shall overflow and pass over he wins Though so they come against him with all this might he still overcomes them he's going to enter into the glorious land he's gonna take those countries to be overthrown there's three countries or three ancient empires so to speak so those regions edom moab and the children of ammon that are unscathed in this unscathed is probably the wrong way but they're unconquered in the middle of all this for whatever reasons and there's probably reasons uh i'm not going to talk about them this morning because i don't feel like i'm properly prepared for that i think that's a very complicated discussion and highly speculative so there's no sense covering and putting a bunch of things in here that may or may not be. Uh, Verse 42, he stretches forth his hand against all the countries in the land of Egypt shall not escape. And then we have all the treasuries of gold. Um, All the, the Libyans, Ethiopians are going to be at his steps. In other words, they're there in subjection. They're not
0: there to war against him at his steps. They're there in subjection. So he wins all these victories, but this war represents rebellion
1: against this final ruler. So even though he's carefully crafted this world religion, this one world uh, political entity where he is the head and
0: God, there are those who would rebel against it. Which really shouldn't surprise us. Because the nature of mankind himself is to exalt himself. And in addition to that, turn back
1: to Revelation 17. As I said, God is allowing things to happen here to bring about his will. And in Revelation 17, even this rebellion is something that has been discussed and told that is going to happen. So we're talking about these kingdoms that are aligned in Revelation 17 with the Antichrist, these ten horns. Uh, and it says, uh, verse 16 in the, the ten horns, I'm going to verse 15. And he said unto me, the waters which thou sawest, which the horse sit, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Now if you go back up, the, the, this horde that is being discussed is this uh, representation of this end world religion. That's what's being talked about here. And the waters that she's sitting on are all the nations. So this is this worldwide religion being discussed. And the ten horns which thou saw upon the beast, they shall hate, uh, hate this world religion, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Even they rebel against it. Remember that he's not only blaspheming against the living God, he's blaspheming against their gods. He's supplanting all of their religions forcing everyone to worship him. And that's not well received, even though he's carefully crafted this. Even though he has the military might to put people to death for not worshiping. Verse 17, and this is the important part, for God has put it in their hearts, the hearts of these ten kings, to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of
0: God shall be fulfilled. So God puts it into the hearts of these 10 kings to fulfill his will. There's going to be a rebellion, which is what we're reading
1: about. But ultimately, as we come into the very end of everything, when Jesus actually returns, they will yield their their kingdoms to the beast, to the Antichrist. And we see that discussed in Zechariah chapter 14 if you'll
0: turn there with for just a moment we're, hold your place in Revelation because we're going to come back to that <clears throat> Zechariah chapter 14
1: while you're turning to Zechariah this is because this is a description of a, of a battle and of what I, I want to indicate or, or point out is that there are a lot of people who will take the battles described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, because there are battles described there. And they're prophetic. They haven't happened yet as far as we can tell. And they'll put those battles into these areas, into these end times battles. The issue with that is that if you read the descriptions of what is happening, because those are battles that happened during Israel's day, there is a lot of peace. That is the natural state in which Israel find itself. It is at peace. It's not at war. It's not in the position where it's having to defend itself. It's at peace. Yet when we find these indications, because this is really as, as the Gentile and the, the uh, Jewish prophetic track rung side by
0: side, and we uni- unified, united, are the people of God, they're persecuted. They're
1: heavily persecuted, so much so that God is dealing with them specifically and giving them a place to flee to. But ultimately, it's not a time of peace. The the things that are not the same in those descriptions of of battle in in regard to the context are really important. And so I just bring it up because as you read through, you'll find those battles thrown in here. and, And there seems to be a great disparity between what's really happening, the context in which they're found. And the first rule of hermeneutics is context. So we want to make sure we're sensitive to that. So we're not talking about them here because I think they're something in the middle, which is an interesting thought. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1 through 4 Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken and the house rifled and the women ravished and the half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east and Uh, on the east and the mount of olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west and there shall be a very great valley and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south so what we have described here is all nations ultimately coming against Israel ultimately all nations coming against Jerusalem which is which is key where did the beast put his uh, his tabernacle it says so it says he put it
0: in the holy mount of god um where did it say that in daniel chapter 11 oh verse 45 and he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain so between the seas
1: the dead sea uh, and the, the other sea anyway it's, I apologize. Um, But there it is on the glorious holy mountain. That's really the only reference we needed. That's a clear reference to the temple mount in Jerusalem. So, and we know that that's going to have to happen, that the temple has to be rebuilt. We know that the abomination that makes desolate, which is yet prophetic from Jesus's standpoint, is where he's going to set himself up as God. That's exactly what's being described here. He's going to make his tabernacle, the place where, quote-unquote, God dwells with his people, be there in that temple that's been constructed. That's a pretty substantial uh, claim, especially as everyone's already concerned and really having angst. But ultimately, because the battle isn't against him, the battle that people who are wanting to rage is against God, we find that everyone comes together and Jesus' return. So in Zechariah chapter 14, that's what's being described, this final battle, this last war that is going to happen. Jesus is returned, and he touches down on the Mount of Olives, and everyone comes against him. All of these nations, and when I say everyone, I don't mean all people per se, but all these nations, this political manifestation of of the enemies of God coming together, unify one last time,
0: to try and wipe out the King of kings and Lord of lords. And as we read here in Daniel chapter 11, at the end of that verse,
1: yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. In other words, he loses and there's no one that could have helped him. Because there are other nations that are coming with him, but there is no one that could help him. Turn me to Revelation chapter 19.
0: Revelation 19. Let's look at verses 17 through 21. So we have
1: this this Jesus Christ returning. We see him in his glory. We see him differently coming to make war against these enemies uh, in Revelation 19. We begin at verse 17, And I saw an angel standing in the sun and cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. There's a description of total destruction of armies. kings. Captains, soldiers, all wrought out on the battlefield, laying their dead to be consumed by these birds. That's what's being described here. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet, with that wrought miracles before him, which with, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of burning fire, uh, fire, burning with brimstone. Verse 21, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. It's an interesting thought to me that here is Jesus Christ and what does he come and what does he overcome with? It says that he, as he comes down, we have a description of him in Revelation 19, but there's a sword proceeding from his mouth. And I'm convinced that because wherever else we encounter the sword In scripture, in the New Testament, that is the word of God. How did Jesus defeat this massive number of enemies, this huge army assailed against him? With a word. Just as he spoke everything into existence, just as when Jesus said, when they came to take him to crucify him, I am, and they were knocked over by the the simple utterance of his name. Jesus comes back not to, to defeat, and he does so easily we have these descriptions of wars and battles and all those things and i think that sometimes we miss the fact that when god returns when he comes back to conquer it's just that there is no contest with a word he defeats all of his enemies everyone that has come against him everyone that stands against him and what great significance that gives you and I as believers
0: today who live under the truth that if God is for us, who can be against us? We read about hardship for,
1: for believers throughout this process. We read about hardship for Israel throughout this process. But we never read about the loss or, or somehow not winning or somehow not established victory. We know that all things, even the persecution of the saints, even the hardships that we may experience, that all things work together for the, for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. That even in the midst of this, God is in the business of redemption for you and I, making us into the image of Christ.
0: All of this for His glory, for His purpose. So,
1: current events. Right, And, I, and I've, I've talked about this in the past when it comes to uh, prophecy and the danger of, saying, uh, of sitting around and the preoccupation of trying to fit every news headline into some prophetic category. I'm sorry, it's just not going to. It's going to fit into the catch-all that man is sinful and man wants to suppress the knowledge of God. That's generally where most of it's going to end. But I bring it up here for a few reasons because as I've talked to people, whether it's at work or talk to other people out and about, there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of fear because we have the potential for world war on our doorstep currently. I mean, We see Russia invading the Ukraine. We see NATO allies gearing up even today, even right now, looking at coming into the defense of the Ukraine, and that's significant. We have in response to those steps, Russia saying, listen, if you do that, there'll be economic and military consequences. In other words, we're not going to trade with you anymore. We'll impose our own sanctions, and we're going to make war with you. For you to come to the aid of
0: the Ukraine is to come at war with Russia. It's kind of Scary. And so it comes up, well, is this, you know, is this it? Is this the final battle? Well, is there a single
1: ruler in the world? No. You can't point to anyone and say, well, that's the guy. I don't see anyone worshiping in a single religion. Those things that are clearly identified, they're, they're not there. Has the temple been rebuilt? No. Not on the temple you read these articles and things and maybe it's all pre prefabbed and ready to go. I mean, I've read more than one article stating that, but I haven't seen it.
0: So I don't really know. Wouldn't surprise me, but it's not built. It isn't standing. It hasn't been erected. And so we have, we have some things that are out of line that, that don't
1: quite line up. Remember I mentioned earlier that there's a war talked about in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Israel being in relative peace and all those things, maybe what we're witnessing now is some indication of that. I don't know. And we have to be very careful when when we begin to do that. And you see the slippery slope that we find ourselves on if and when we do that. To say this is happening. We can look at history like we did last week. History that's been fulfilled and we can see those things where they clearly, this is this is a fulfillment in history of this thing, but that's looking back on it. And like they say,
0: hindsight is 2020. When we're looking at things that are happening right now, that are events,
1: current events, we don't have the benefit of time passing. And we begin a very slippery slope
0: of rapid descent and paranoia that ought not to characterize the believer. In Matthew chapter 24, let's turn there. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus himself
1: in Matthew 24 addresses the end times. And there's a few things for us to take away from this passage uh, of importance, not only to our topic this morning, but of importance to what we see in the world around us today. Matthew chapter 24, let's begin in verse 4. Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. I'll just pause there. What are we taking here? What, what are we being deceived about? If we go back in the context, um, <laughs> uh, we have the destruction of the temple. We have all of these things that are being talked about. Uh, Jesus in verse two says, See, see you not all these things, verily I say to you, there shall not uh, be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus is talking about in, in many respects the destruction of the temple and all those things, but there's further more than that being discussed here in matthew 24 and the reason we know that is because there are things that are yet unfulfilled in matthew 24 consistent with all of scripture
0: that jesus looks forward to as being future but he says don't be deceived don't be caught up
1: don't and whether that's a self-deception or or uh, a hysterical uh, deception where we're caught up in future or, or in current events and those things, don't be deceived. We still have to be vigilant. Verse five: for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. That's a significant statement, isn't it? All of these things have to come to pass, but the end is not yet. God has told us what the end time is going to look like. He didn't give us names, he didn't give us dates, but he gave us general characteristics that we can recognize. The end is not yet. Verse 7, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes
0: in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. We have a description of, of things that are going to happen,
1: but that they don't necessarily indicate anything significant in and of themselves. But what are they? They're the manifestations of man's sinfulness in the world around us. Pestilence, disease, all of those things. Kingdoms rising against
0: kingdom, war. All those things being the result of sinful, carnal, fleshy actions on a national or, or worldwide stage. Daniel is clearly told that the things that are, that, that
1: are happening, that he's going to see, that he sees in this vision, are yet future. And because we don't see these key characteristics in history, we have to understand, just as God told Daniel, that these are yet future. If we look at Daniel uh, chapter 11, let's just look at a few verses in, in
0: verse 35. As we close this morning, verse 35, he tells him, And some of them of understanding shall fall to
1: try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. There's a reference to persecution of the people of God, whether it's Israel or the church. And don't mistake, we're not replacing Israel, but, but we are part of the people of God. And, and they're going to be persecuted. But he says, but it is yet for a time appointed. This vision that we've seen, Daniel, that is something yet future. And then in verse 40, again, he tells him, and at the time of the end, shall the king of the side, at the time of the end, this is, this world war is going to happen. All of these things will come to pass. But what do we find before we get to the time of the end of that description? Well, we find a single world ruler rising up. We find a uh, single religion. We have, we have in, in some respects, some iteration as we go, as we go back to the temple being rebuilt if not there at least
0: somewhere uh, shortly after this where religion is established because that is where he puts his idol we have to remember that god is still in control
1: and i know we talked about this last week but it's worth reiterating there's enough uncertainty in the times around us this is a Key thing for us as believers to have in our back pocket as we're sharing the gospel, that we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, his sovereignty, his control, his concern for mankind. The fact that he hasn't forsaken us, the fact that all of that stuff that we see is not his doing, but it is being redeemed on his behalf, that
0: it it's the sinful manifestation of man's heart and disdain for God. Yet God redeems it for his purpose. And that's a great transition to talking about being redeemed
1: and God using and being the redeemer. As we get into this and as we look at what's happening here and we see in verse 45 at the end, none shall help him. No one can help him.
0: There's nothing there uh, that, that says or would indicate that he's going to win. The Antichrist is defeated. The enemies of God are defeated. Jesus sits at the right hand of God until his enemies be made his footstool. And ultimately, all of those things come together, and we see God telling us what what is going to happen.
1: Now, does it sound pleasant to go through? Does it sound pleasant to experience? Does it sound pleasant uh, that, that maybe our children, even if it isn't me, but my children or grandchildren or, or future generations are going to have? No, it doesn't
0: sound like that's anything that I want anyone to go through. So you and I, as we see this, as we look at the future, as we
1: see the accuracy of prophecy, we see the God's faithfulness to bring things to pass.
0: It's a motivation for us to build discipline into our lives that we would share the gospel with people. That they wouldn't experience the hardship and the persecution, that they wouldn't
1: be deluded by the deceptions that are yet to come, those things that are going to happen, but that they would have some foundation of truth to build upon, to recognize the
0: error and the falsehood and the propaganda and all of those things. I know very often it comes back to our responsibility to share the gospel. But for you and I as believers, that's a big component of what this is about. The church isn't
1: discussed primarily in prophecy. There are hints here and there. The church is discussed at the end of the gospels where Jesus sends us out Gives us our marching orders and says, go into all the nations, teaching them, making disciples and teaching them to obey whatsoever I've commanded you. That's what we do in the meantime. That's what we're engaged in now. At some point, people are not going to want to hear it at all. So much so that we're all willing to get on the bandwagon and say, we're going to disallow anything having
0: remotely to do with Christ.
1: we look at things that are happening in the world around us,
0: even in our near neighborhood, and you realize that, man, it's maybe not as far off as I would have wanted it to be.
1: (laughs) That maybe there has been some abdication on the part of the church, and we have left some things undone
0: that we should have been more heavily engaged in. And even that is a motivator to build
1: discipline within our lives that we might more accurately, more consistently represent Jesus Christ to the world around us. It is about the gospel. It is about the salvation of people. That is what God's business is about. It's what the rest of scripture is about from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Even through the prophetic things that we are studying here in the book of Daniel, yet future, it is about God's redemptive purpose, ultimately culminating in the new heavens and the new earth. And we have a little part to play in that as we sow the seeds of the gospel as we tend those seeds as we even hopefully have the opportunity to reap some of those
0: seeds as we see people come to come to Christ. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that
1: you put before us. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We praise you for for the comfort and the, the assurance that it brings to us. We look at very detailed and specific prophecies in the first half of Daniel chapter 11, Lord, and that gives us some confidence that as we look at the detailed prophecies that are, that, that, we, that, that are in the latter half of the chapter, they got, they're unfulfilled. They're yet future, just as Jesus understood them to be, just as Daniel understood them to be. And Lord, I pray that those truths and the, the default position of man to be condemned to hell as a result of their separation from you. or that those truths, those things that are yet coming, the judgment of uh, of your just wrath upon the earth for sin, or did that, that would be something that would cause us to develop this discipline
0: and engage the world around us with the truth of salvation by your son, Jesus Christ, and him alone. We thank
1: you, Lord, that we get to be part of that. We thank you, Lord, that we get to engage the world around us. And I pray, Lord, for your grace for everyone here and for myself that we might do so in a way that is honoring to you, that is effective. And God, as we close this morning, I want to to pray specifically for those that are near and dear to us. Because I'm sure that all of us here have someone in mind that we would like to see saved, come, come to faith in Jesus Christ, born again, Lord, adopted into your family. Lord, I want to pray for those people. I want to pray for them specifically, that you would use each one of us, that we might be those witnesses to them. That, Lord, you would even now prepare the soil of their hearts to receive the, the word of truth, those seeds in their lives. And God, that you would give us the grace that we might be diligent stewards of the grace that has been sown in their hearts. We pray for their salvation, Lord. We thank you that you don't desire that any would perish. And Lord, with that trust and with that assurance, we come to worship with the the desire to do so because of who you are and all that you have done on our behalf. We praise you. We thank you, Lord.
0: We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.